Welcome to OneGreatMoment.com, a podcast clearinghouse for everybody's greatest stories. We've all got a tale to tell, and someday we'd love to hear yours. You can see our website for how that works. But here and now, in this moment, we're off to moment number four, a flight around Denali or Mount McKinley. Enjoy your listen. Here's a great moment, the significance of which is not diminished at all by the fact that it's been shared by thousands of people over the years. Not all at once, of course, but a lot of folks have had the opportunity to take a flight up into what's been called the throne room of the mountain gods, Mount McKinley, or Denali, in Alaska. If you've taken this flight, we'll rekindle your memory. If not, we'll try to shoot an audio photo for you. Denali is the highest point in North America, but in reality it's one of the highest mountains in the world. In terms of vertical drop from top to bottom, it ranks up there with Everest or anything else because it starts from such a low altitude. In other words, it's got a very low base and a very tall summit, 20,320 feet. We're headed that way on this flight. Our flight's going to begin at the old mining town of Kantishna. Let me set the scene. Kantishna is at the very end of the 100-mile-long limited-access road that leads into the heart of Denali National Park. In fact, the last quarter mile of that gravel road is our airstrip. It's a short strip, about 1,800 feet, in a tight valley. In fact, it's one of the few strips in the state of Alaska that's marked hazardous on the charts. But we've never had a problem. You just need to be familiar with the surroundings. And we've been flying here for just about 15 years. We're going to take our flight in a Cessna 206, essentially the workhorse or SUV of Alaska. It's not real big inside, six seats, with a big engine up front and special modifications that make it perfect for what we do, which is short runways and big mountains. And that's why we use them. They're the right tool for the job. We're going to be taking off downhill on this flight, departing down our valley, which has a fairly steep incline as Moose Creek flows off to the northwest. So we taxi back up to the uphill end, keep our momentum up as we turn and take off downhill. We'll be pretty low as we lift off the end of the runway. The idea is to build up our speed since it can get a little bumpy at the mouth of the valley and airspeed equals safety. Just after lifting off, we'll pass very low over a beautiful pond with a big beaver lodge on the right. Good place to keep our eyes open for moose as well. You'll notice Moose Creek falling away on the right-hand side of the plane as we take a big left turn out toward the southwest. Further off to the right, I'd like to draw your attention to a whole lot of nothing, actually. Thousands of square miles of very flat swamp, tundra with very few trees, perhaps the world's foremost mosquito breeding ground, a fact we're quite proud of in Kantishna. We're so far north, the timberline is at about two or 3,000 feet, just about our altitude here. So there are a few stands of spruce, but from the air it looks deceptively like a golf course, a lot of mottled greens. Of course, if you were down on the ground, you'd have a very different impression as you thrashed through tall brush or sank up to your knees in wet, spongy tundra vegetation. As we leave the valley, we head out now along the north side of Brooker Ridge. We can't see Denali yet as we ride the winds which hit the ridge for a little bit of lift. This is our best chance to spot wildlife, though, since for much of this flight we'll be way up in the snowy upper reaches of the mountains. 
But along here, we'll keep our eyes open for caribou, moose, the occasional grizzly bear, and the very infrequent wolf. Of course, my ulterior motive here is to keep everybody's eyes looking down, because I love to be a little bit theatrical as we cross over the ridge crest and blam, there's the entire Alaska range, emerging as far as you can see, both to the left and the right. And right in the center of this huge panorama sits the big guy, Denali, itself. Of course, big guy is a little bit of a loose translation. The true translation from the native Athabascan language is the great one or the tall one. Speaking of appropriate, it's probably a good time to set the scene again in a couple of ways. First of all, if your mind's eye has you sitting in the back of this small airplane looking forward, what you see in the left front seat is the back of some guy's head with probably a bad haircut and a big bulbous headset. And truth in advertising, that would be me, Chicken Bill. This is my summer job. Beyond that, let's set the outside scene here. We've come across Brooker Ridge... Eureka Creek flows back towards Kantishna on our left, and there's an old gold mine right below us. Ahead is a huge valley which comes off the end of the Muldrow Glacier, itself draining the north side of the Alaska Range. We're about 25 miles from Denali at this point, but on the other side of the valley, the range looks like a sawtooth stairway, slowly increasing in height from left to right as the peaks of Mounts Mather, Deception, Brooks, and Silverthrone, all at about 12 to 13,000 feet, finally give way in a giant leap to the north summit of Denali, or Mount McKinley. And off to the right, the peaks continue as far as the eye can see, beginning with Mount Foraker, the second tallest peak in the Alaska Range, at 17,400 feet. Now our Cessna moves along at about 150 miles per hour, but this land is so huge in scope that we don't seem to be covering much ground at all. In fact, one of the hardest parts of my job is to convince passengers that although the view is incredible now, it will only get better as we get up into the scenery that we're merely gaping at from here. So we'll cross the broad, braided McKinley River below us and follow its tributary, the Muddy River, directly to its source at the toe of another giant glacier, the Peters, right at the base of Denali. I'll make a couple of turns now so we can all look out the side windows and take in the hundreds of miles of mountains. But every time we turn, we end up flying away from our destination. Funniest thing. So I'm going to overrule all the photographers snapping away and point the nose right at the mountain. As I said, the view is great from here, but you ain't seen nothing yet. We'll be there in about 10 minutes of real time, but we'll just fast forward right up there on this virtual flight. And lo and behold, here we are at the toe of the Peters Glacier, which is a great place for a little perspective check. And this flight is all about perspective. The scale is completely screwed up. It's almost impossible to grasp how large everything is that surrounds us. Not only Denali, looming above, but even the muddy river just below us. The muddy emerges from the toe of the Peters Glacier out of what appears to be a small hole, but which in fact is about a hundred foot tall cave in the ice wall at the glacier's terminus. The river itself emerges fully formed in a brown, frothy torrent much the same color as the dirty glacier, looking extremely unglacial at this stage of its life. Since glaciers are essentially huge conveyor belts carrying the mountains away, in this case a 25-mile long conveyor belt, as they reach their end, their ice is completely covered with the debris that they've carried off the mountain. Think chocolate sundae covered with nuts. We'll see the white upper reaches in a short while. 
We'll circle over the toe of the Peters a bit in order to gain some altitude here. And this gives us a great view up the two-mile-wide glacier toward the gigantic bend that makes about five miles up glacier or upstream, since a glacier is, of course, a very slow-moving river of ice. Looming above us, just beyond the bend of the Peters, is the largest vertical expanse on Earth, the north face of the North Summit, also known as the Wickersham Wall. It's about three miles high and five miles wide, dropping in one unbroken plunge from the 19,500-foot north summit of Denali down to 5,500 feet on the glacier below us. And again, we're so small it's almost impossible to grasp this scale. People often ask if there are any climbers up there, and later on the flight I can point out a couple of the routes that have been climbed on the Wickersham Wall. But if there were climbers up there, you would not be able to see them at all. They'd be absolutely microscopic. Fourteen Empire State Buildings, or three Grand Canyons. You choose a measuring stick, but you get the idea. So we'll fly on up the valley of the Peters Glacier. We're still climbing here, currently at about 7,000 feet. Most likely, depending on the winds, we'll be going through a pass called Gunsight Pass soon where we'll need, oh, actually about that altitude. Then we'll climb up some more into the head of the Muldrow Glacier. Going through Gunside Pass is occasionally a little bumpy, since it's a bit of a funnel. You do have strong air movement in the Alaska Range. Prevailing winds are out of the southwest. They hit the Alaska Range, a gigantic wall, slop over the top, and can create a fair amount of turbulence down below on the lee side. The amount of wind we have will determine the amount of clearance we need from the ridges we're going to cross. And that's something I'll be thinking about throughout the flight. There's a lot to look at, but I've seen it before. So I always think about flying first. I think we'll do a little spiral climb here just to get a bit more altitude above Gunsight Pass. While we're doing that, since we're circling right below the Wickersham Wall, it's a great time to reflect on where all the scenery came from. We're sitting right in the middle of one of the great textbook geology scenarios. The whole reason for the Alaska Range actually passes right through Gunsight Pass. Gunsight divides the Muldrow and Peters glaciers, which is right where the Denali Fault passes from one glacier to the other. And of course the fault line is the reason all this rock is here, created by the forces of two gigantic chunks of the Earth's crust, tectonic plates colliding with each other. The Pacific Plate is running into, sliding along, and actually crashing underneath and lifting the North American Plate right below us. And the result of that lifting is what we're surrounded by. Denali is still growing at about the same rate that your fingernail grows. About a centimeter a year. In fact, if anybody's from San Francisco, and if they could wait long enough, they'd be home. Since San Francisco is headed this way... The seam between these plates is a cousin, some geologists even consider it an extension, of the San Andreas Fault. And the overall northward motion of the Pacific Coast is sending all you warm-blooded Californians our way. Not to worry, however, since given the time scale, we may be looking at a very different climate in Alaska by the time you get here. We're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 million years. But I lack that much patience, or fuel for that matter, so we'll head on over Pioneer Ridge, which comes off the Wickersham Wall, just above Gunsight Pass. At our current altitude of 10,000 feet, we're just about a mile above the Peters Glacier and about two miles below the summit above us. So we'll turn, slide over Pioneer Ridge, and we'll be right up in the upper reaches of the Muldrow Glacier. 
Pioneer Ridge was named in honor of the early climbers back around the turn of the century, but it wasn't the actual route that they took. In fact, as we slide across the ridge, looking down you'll notice why. It's an absolute razor ridge with a several thousand foot drop off on either side. In places, this ridge is not a lot wider than your foot, so the route of the early climbers was actually way down on the Muldrow Glacier below us. Looking off to the left, you'll get the full extent of the Muldrow, about 15 or 20 miles before it makes a big bend around a 10 mile corner to become the headwaters of the McKinley River. On the right side of the plain looking up, the Muldrow continues up a very steep valley to its source at the Harper Icefall, a gigantic tongue of ice about 3,000 feet in height. The Harper Icefall is as far as you can get on the Muldrow itself. It's too unstable to climb. At that point, climbers continue, and a few parties still do climb this route every year, off to the left on Karsten's Ridge, that very narrow sneaking snow ramp, which rises from the 12,000 foot elevation up to about 15,000 feet. From there they gain the Harper Glacier and then proceed onto whichever summit they choose to climb, generally the taller south one. We need to circle a couple of times here in the upper Muldrow Valley since we need to get up to around 11,000 feet before we go between Mount Carpe and Mount Tatum. As we circle now, both summits are finally in view, the true summit about 800 feet taller and two miles behind it. Mount Carpe is a rather sad story. Alan Carpe, one of the great climbers of his time, was lost up here in 1939 after falling into one of the crevasses down below us in the Muldrow Glacier. Those cracks, which look like little cracks in the sidewalk from our altitude, can be up to 50 feet across and up to 200 feet deep. They're frequently hidden by snow bridges which form each winter, and apparently Carpe fell through a collapsing snow bridge and was never seen again. A rather unfortunate way to get a mountain named after you. The preferable way would be to be like Tatum. He was one of four in the original party to climb to the True or South Summit back in 1913. There's a moral in there someplace. Although if that's the case, why is Carpe the larger peak? Coming out of this big turn, we ease right between Mount Carpe and Mount Tatum. And Carpe comes by pretty close on the right wing, probably about a thousand feet. It feels so close that we could shovel snow with our wing, but that's just another example of the scale up here. Things are much bigger and farther away than they seem. Coming through this pass gets us into a whole new valley, that of the Trelika Glacier, which on our left we can see draining down and into the Muldrow. The Trelika is a tributary of the Muldrow. On the right-hand side, looking up the Trelika, there are two gigantic forks. The right fork, or west fork of the Trelika, leads right up to the Trelika Icefall, which is a frozen waterfall almost two vertical miles in height, with ice tumbling very slowly down from the Thayer Basin at the 15,000-foot level up on Denali. The valley here at the Y of the Trelika is quite wide, about three miles. So we've got plenty of room to get both wings up and out of the way by making some turns. And each side of the airplane can have a good view up towards both summits. There's a very distinct color change. The rock of the north summit is quite dark, and it has an inclined strata of very black rock that almost looks like it's being lifted up and away by the massive gray granite that makes up the south summit. Another perfect example of the Pacific Plate running underneath the North American Plate right here and lifting and floating this big ball or pluton of gray granite up through the dark ancient seabeds 
associated with the North American plate. We'll come out of this turn and head towards Trelika Coal. Coal is the Welsh word for a pass, and this pass is the watershed of the Alaska Range. Everything below and behind us now is flowing back to the Yukon River. But as soon as we cross the pass, everything below us will ultimately flow south out to the Cook Inlet via the Susitna River towards Anchorage in the Pacific Ocean. I generally like to set people up for a rather exhilarating effect here, crossing Trelika Cold. Mountain wave is a phenomenon which can occur when the air crosses high points in any mountain range. It's almost like a standing wave in river rapids where the river goes over a large shelf or rock. Of course, that wave isn't visible in the air, which makes it a little harder to understand and therefore disconcerting, but it is quite normal. Sometimes you get a little feeling that you're like a cork in the ocean. There could be either an upward flow of air or another spot's downward. The trick is to know which is where and where is which. We can anticipate this, but I like to set people up for it because it does give you that elevator feeling in your stomach. We'll make sure we've got plenty of clearance from the pass, but generally when you get down on one side, you're going to get up on the other, so it's just a matter of being prepared. Crossing into the Ruth Amphitheater at Trelika Cole is one of the more jaw-dropping moments during this flight. The Ruth Amphitheater on the south side of the range is about 25 or 30 square miles of ice, enclosing five forks of the Ruth Glacier all of which collect in this one enormous basin. That basin, also called the Sheldon Amphitheater after early bush pilot Don Sheldon, is formed from Mount Huntington way over on one side to Mount Silverthrone on the other, and all of this ice has to squeeze through the Ruth Gorge below us. The gorge is very impressive, even from our altitude a couple of miles above the ice, but the scale is made a little clearer once again when I mention the fact that the gorge we're looking down on happens to be exactly the same depth as the Grand Canyon. Anywhere else in the world, this would be its own national park. Here it's just one more impressive feature in the shadow of Denali. And the scope becomes even more ridiculous when you realize that the ice in that gorge is over 4,000 feet thick. So if that ice were to melt, we'd have a canyon twice the depth of the Grand Canyon. On a perfect day, which is of course what we're visualizing this to be, there'll be a lot of other aircraft up flying around the mountain. We do all fly counterclockwise in order to keep things going in the same direction. But coming across Trelika Coal, we change our radio frequency, and that gets us on the radio with all the traffic from the south side of the mountain. There are a lot more operators flying folks up into the Alaska range from Talkeetna, so you have to imagine a pretty constant radio conversation going on on my part. And, of course, our passengers are all able to hear this. But any time we get anywhere near another aircraft, either in altitude or distance, we begin chatting about where and how high we are and where we're headed. We definitely don't want to be in the same place at the same time. While we're stepping back, let's just take a moment again and set the scene. Because the Ruth Amphitheater is, as I say, one of the most extraordinary places on the planet. Here we are in the midst of this enormous amphitheater of about 30 square miles. We're up near 12,000 feet above sea level. We've got a sea of ice about a mile and a half below us. The altitude of the Ruth Glacier is, oh, about 6,000 feet. There are countless tall peaks towering on all sides, Mount Dickey and the Moose's Tooth framing the entrance to the Great Ruth Gorge, Mount Huntington off the nose, Silverthrone behind us, 
can look back and see the low point in the mountains, Trelika Coal, where we came across from the north side. The many forks of glacier below us are each fed by a number of ice falls tumbling down from the great walls of rock and ice at their heads. The lower main stem of the Ruth Glacier looks somewhat like an oversized superhighway, with big stripes of black debris that run down in long files just like the lanes on a highway. They're caused by erosion. Where two forks of a glacier merge, each having carved rock away from the side of its own valley. When the two side forks become the middle of the new bigger glacier, they form what are known as medial moraines. These long pressure ridges of rock striate the ice all the way to the glacier's terminus, which in the case of the Ruth is over 30 miles. And towering above each valley, vast mountain faces, vertical solid gray granite, very much like Yosemite Valley in California, only far bigger. We'll now head on over the shoulder of the French Ridge of Mount Huntington, so named because it was first climbed by Lionel Terre, a great French climber back in 1953. As we go by the French Ridge, take a good look, because it's the most difficult peak in the Alaska Range to get to the top of. Obviously, it's far shorter than Denali at only 12,200 feet. But on a smooth day, when we're absolutely sure there are no climbers on the ridge, which there rarely are, we can glide by quite close and you'll see that, in fact, there is no easy way up this mountain. We're looking at a very steep, very narrow ridge winding its way up toward the summit with large cornices hanging off on both sides. Cornices are overhanging ceilings of ice which are created as the wind blows the snow over the top of the ridge, and much of the French ridge is actually double corniced. Plus, they have a nasty tendency to break away, not constantly. Rarely do we see one break from the air. But climbers have a much slower time frame, and it's not where you want to be, on or below a cornice when it breaks. On top of that, consider that the French Ridge is the easiest route on Mount Huntington. All those other vertical faces have been climbed as well. Terrain falls away steeply as we cross the French Ridge and enter the upper reaches of the Tokositna Glacier. Tokositna is the Athabascan name for the river that flows off this glacier, meaning river that begins in the land of no trees, particularly appropriate up here in the highest pass we'll cross on our flight. There's not a lot of room to maneuver, but we can lower the left wing briefly and look down into the upper Tokositna icefall. Colossal towers of brilliant blue ice, hundreds of feet tall, tumble slowly down into the lower Tokositna glacier. And of course, when that left wing goes down, the right wing comes up, and the Cassine Ridge and Great South Buttress of Denali itself are now filling the windows on our right side. We're headed for North Hunter Pass between Mount Hunter, the third tallest peak in the range at 14,500 feet, and the South Buttress of Denali. Crossing this pass, we'll be entering the Cahiltna Glacier Basin. The Cahiltna is the longest of all the glaciers in the Alaska Range at 45 miles, and as we slide through North Hunter Pass, we can see the origins of the glacier way off to our right at Cahiltna Pass. We'll eventually be crossing through Cahiltna Pass on our way back to the north side of the mountain. Directly ahead of us, the third of the three great peaks of the Alaska Range, Mount Foraker, towers above the completely ice-filled Cahiltna Basin. The Athabascans saw these three peaks, Mount Foraker, or Sultana, the mother, Denali, the great one, dad, and Mount Hunter, Baguya, the child, as a family. 
And from the south side of the range on a clear day, which doesn't happen all that often, it really does have the appearance of a family clustered way off in the distance. At the moment, though, we'll postulate that it's climbing season, which runs from mid-May through mid-July. As a result, there's a whole lot of activity down in the Cahiltna Basin. Directly below us on the southeast fork of the Cahiltna is what's known as Base Camp, a landing area for the ski planes which drop climbers off on their way up the mountain. Virtually all, probably 95% of the attempts on Denali, and there are about 1,300 people a year who try the mountain, begin down here at Base Camp and go up the west buttress, or shoulder, of the peak. From our altitude, the tents and airplanes at Base Camp appear as a cluster of tiny colored dots. You can just barely see the indistinct ski and snowshoe track descending Heartbreak Hill, as it's called, down from Base Camp. The trail then turns right onto the main fork of the Cahiltna Glacier for about 10 miles in a fairly flat uphill climb until you get to Cahiltna Pass. Take a right and get onto the actual west buttress of the mountain. At that point, the route winds up and around a number of obstacles to the 14,000-foot level where there's a large flat plateau, very safe from avalanches. That's a spot where most climbers will spend several days getting used to the altitude before they proceed on up to one more camp at 17,000 feet and then on for a summit attempt. This route, pioneered by Bradford Washburn in 1947 after extensive aerial photography, was made possible by the advent of glacier planes. The ability to land climbers on the glacier avoids the long walk in from Kantishna, the north approach, which all the pioneer climbers took. The west buttress remains the safest way up the mountain in terms of exposure to avalanche and rockfall from above. Of course, no route can avoid Denali's notorious weather. Most parties will spend two and a half to three weeks on an attempt of Denali. Four friends and I made a fairly typical trip last year. We were up for 24 days, which included seven nights stuck in a storm at 17,000 feet. Running low on supplies, we finally turned back just below the summit in winds of 80 to 100 miles an hour. But we're getting close to Kelton Pass, so we'll do one more 360 up here, giving us two views, of course. First down, where we can see pairs of dots in groups moving up the glacier. The front dot being the climber, and behind each climber is his sled. Typically, climbers will carry 40 to 60 pounds on their back and about the same in their sled. And even though they're on flat ground, they're always roped together because there's danger of crevasse fall at any time. Crevasses are hidden by the winter snow until that snow melts away and leaves astoundingly azure blue ponds. The liquid water lying on top of the bottomless ice creates a prismatic effect where all the colors of the rainbow are refracted out except for that deep, deep blue. Meanwhile, of course, our other upward wing is panning past Mount Foraker, Mount Hunter, and then Denali. Northbound again will level off and head for Kiltna Pass, where we'll cross back over the spine of the range. And once again, we may get a little upward and downward wave motion. It brings to mind one of the first times I was ever up here many years ago in a small piper with my wife and young son. We encountered some extremely smooth but very strong updraft on the downwind side of the mountain. Even with the throttle pulled all the way back and the nose pointing down as much as possible, we were still climbing at almost 2,000 feet a minute. I certainly don't anticipate that today. In fact, in conditions like that, we wouldn't be up here with passengers. Sailing northward across Cahiltna Pass, there's not a lot of room to maneuver 
but fleetingly, under the right wing, we get a great view of the 11,000-foot camp on the West Buttress Route. This is the closest we'll get to climbers. They're about a quarter of a mile off our right wing. Typically, there are quite a few tents and deep holes, snow caves, and igloos erected here by the climbers on their way up Denali. It's all downhill from the pass as we fly out over the upper reaches of the Peters Glacier. This is the upper end of the same glacier we first saw on our way up, the one with the cave at its toe. It's a lot whiter up here. We'll head right on down that glacier for about 25 miles, which just happens to take us right in front of the Wickersham Wall, the greatest vertical expanse on Earth. We generally have calm conditions in the wind shadow against the wall, so we'll be able to get quite close. Furthermore, although there are two routes on the wall, they're almost never climbed, so we don't have to worry about bothering climbers. The Canadian Ridge ahead of us has not only been climbed, but also skied and snowboarded from top to bottom. In case you're looking for a ski vacation next visit, we'll make a big left turn and look right up the ski route to the north summit, about 10,000 vertical feet above us. Everybody on the left side of the plane will be simultaneously looking down into the tumult of the Toluna Icefall on the Peters Glacier, just about a mile straight below us. Next, we'll fly away from the wall for a moment, then turn back and share that same view with the other side of the airplane. Got to be fair here. My favorite story of flying along the Canadian Ridge happened here a couple of years ago. Flying directly at the wall, I knew we had all kinds of room, but suddenly there was a scream in the back of the plane from someone who was absolutely certain we were just about to run right into the mountain. It does kind of fill the windshield, doesn't it? I turned away to make everybody more comfortable. But I happened to know that at the same time, another airplane was flying right along the wall in the opposite direction. As the airplane went by, I pointed it out. It looked about like a large mosquito. All of a sudden, everyone grasped the size of what we were looking at. We were still a couple of miles from Denali at that point, yet it appeared so close we could touch it. We will continue to descend along the Peters Glacier, following its big turn off to the north. And right at the bend, we'll be looking east through Gunside Pass again, down about 20 miles of the valley of the Muldrow Glacier. On a clear day, way off in the distance, we can see Mount Deborah, about 100 miles away. We're in fact sighting directly down the Denali fault line at that point, and the base of Mount Deborah is where the 2003 magnitude 7.9 earthquake occurred, the fourth largest ever recorded in North America. The Denali Fault is still quite active along its almost 900-mile length. We've got a much shorter distance to go. We're headed home, passing over the cave at the toe of the Peters again. This time we're close enough to see the water flowing right out, colored almost milky by the eroded silt it carries off the mountain. That suspended powdered rock dust has a tendency to clog the river. So as we fly over these broad, braided glacial streams, notice how they're forced to migrate back and forth across their riverbed, filling in whatever channel they're currently flowing through and creating new channels in their place. Compressing time again, we soon find ourselves at the confluence of the Muddy and the McKinley River, followed by the upper reaches of Eldorado Creek, downstream to where it joins Moose Creek, just below well-known Wonder Lake. We avoid overflying such areas as Wonder Lake where people tend to be. We'll be right up close to the canyon wall on our right as we fly over our airstrip, make a big left turn and come in uphill. We do land uphill in Kantishna unless we have 10 or 15 knots of wind on our tail. 
The hill is steeper than it looks, and that makes up for all but the strongest tailwind. Keep your eyes open for moose, now on the left-hand side of the airplane in that beaver pond. We'll be nice and low as I try to put it right on the end of the short runway. Let's see if we can't grease this landing. Oops, sorry. Well, they can't all be perfect. Hey, it could have been worse. I crash every time on Microsoft Flight Simulator. At least we're going to walk away from this virtual flight. And hey, thanks. Hope you enjoyed the flight. If you're ever in Kantishna, come see us at Kantishna Air Taxi. We'll do it for real. A little epilogue. Our real flights last about an hour, and the narrative is guided by the interests of the passengers. This is actually the light version as far as information goes. There's so much more depending on the questions we receive. I plan to make an expanded version of this podcast for those who want more detail, particularly those who've taken a flight, but this seemed like plenty for now. And a disclaimer, in case you do come fly with us. Weather is not always as perfect as it was on this flight. What we see varies considerably, and safety comes first. However, we always let our passengers know what to expect before taking them up. If it's not good enough, we don't go. And if we don't get to see what we told you we would, you flew free. But we don't disappoint many passengers. It's absolutely amazing up there. And a virtual flight, even around Denali, would be pretty dry without music. This music by David Henderson from PodsafeAudio.com. Learn more about David Henderson's music at davidhenderson.com. Thanks for listening.